Chapter One of Conan and the Queen of the Black Coast. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenevere. Conan and the Queen of the Black Coast by Robert E. Howard. This story was first published in Weird Tales, May 1934. Chapter One Conan Joins the Pirates. Believe green buds awaken in the spring, that autumn paints the leaves with somber fire. Believe I held my heart inviolate to lavish on one man my hot desire. The Song of Belit. Hoofs drummed down the street that sloped to the wharves. The folk that yelled and scattered had only a fleeting glimpse of a mailed figure on a black stallion, a wide scarlet cloak flowing out on the wind. Far up the street came the shout and clatter of pursuit, but the horseman did not look back. He swept out onto the wharfs and jerked the plunging stallion back on its haunches at the very lip of the pier. Seamen gaped up at him as they stood to the sweep and striped sail of a high-proud, broad-waisted galley. The master, sturdy and black-bearded, stood in the bows, easing her away from the piles with the boat-hook. He yelled angrily as the horseman sprang from the saddle and, with a long leap, landed squarely on the mid-deck. "'Who invited you aboard?' "'Get on the way!' roared the intruder with a fierce gesture that splattered red drops from his broadsword. "'But we're bound for the coasts of Kush,' expostulated the master. "'Then I'm for Kush. Push off, I tell you!' The other cast a quick glance up the street, along which a squad of horsemen were galloping, for behind them toiled a group of archers, crossbows on their shoulders. "'Can you pay for your passage?' demanded the master. "'I pay my way with steel!' roared the man in armor, brandishing the great sword that glittered bluely in the sun. "'By Crom, man, if you don't get under way, I'll drench this galley in the blood of its crew.' The shipmaster was a good judge of men. One glance at the dark, scarred face of the swordsman, hardened with passion, and he shouted a quick order, thrusting strongly against the piles. The galley wallowed out into clear water, the oars began to clack rhythmically, then a puff of wind filled the shimmering sail, the light ship heeled to the gust, then took her course like a swan gathering headway as she skimmed along. On the wharves the riders were shaking their swords and shouting threats and commands that the ship put about, and yelling for the bowmen to hasten before the craft was out of arbalest range. "'Let them rave,' grinned the swordsman heartily. "'Do you keep her on a course, Master Steersman?' The master descended from the small deck between the bows, made his way between the rows of oarsmen, and mounted the mid-deck. The stranger stood there, with his back to the mast, eyes narrowed alertly, sword ready. The shipmen eyed him steadily, careful not to make any move toward the long knife in his belt. He saw a tall, powerfully built figure in a black scale-mail hauberk, burnished greaves, and a blue steel helmet from which jutted bull's horns highly polished. 
From the mailed shoulders fell the scarlet cloak, blowing in the sea-wind. A broad shagreen belt with a golden buckle held the scabbard of the broadsword he wore. Under the horned helmet a square-cut black mane contrasted with smoldering blue eyes. "'If we must travel together,' said the master, "'we may as well be at peace with each other. My name is Tito, licensed master shipman of the ports of Argos. I am bound for Kush, to trade beads and silk and sugar and brass-hilted swords to the black kings for ivory, copra, copper ore, slaves, and pearls.' The swordsman glanced back at the rapidly receding docks, where the figures still gesticulated helplessly, evidently having trouble in finding a boat swift enough to overhaul the fast-sailing galley. "'I am Conan, a Cimmerian,' he answered. "'I came into Argos seeking employment, but with no wars forward there was nothing to which I might turn my hand.' "'Why do the guardsmen pursue you?' asked Tito. "'Not that it's any of my business, but I thought, perhaps—' "'I have nothing to conceal,' replied the Cimmerian. "'By Crom, though, I've spent considerable time among you civilized peoples. Your ways are still beyond my comprehension.' "'Well, last night in a tavern, a captain in the King's Guard offered violence to the sweetheart of a young soldier, who naturally ran him through.' But it seems there is some cursed law against killing guardsmen, and the boy and his girl fled away. It was brooded about that I was seen with them, and so today I was hailed into court, and a judge asked me where the lad had gone. I replied that, since he was a friend of mine, I would not betray him. Then the court waxed wrath, and the judge talked a great deal about my duty to the state and society and other things I did not understand, and bade me tell where my friend had flown. By this time I was becoming wrathful myself, for I had explained my position. But I choked my ire and held my peace, and the judge squalled that I had shown contempt for the court, and that I should be hurled into a dungeon to rot until I betrayed my friend. So then, seeing they were all mad, I drew my sword and cleft the judge's skull. Then I cut my way out of the court, and seeing the high constable stallion tied nearby, I rode for the wharfs, where I thought to find a ship bound for foreign parts. "'Well,' said Tito heartily, "'the courts have fleeced me too often in suits with rich merchants for me to owe them any love.' I'll have questions to answer if I ever anchor in that port again, but I can prove I acted under compulsion. You may as well put up your sword. We're peaceable sailors and have nothing against you. Besides, it's all as well to have a fighting man like yourself on board. Come up on the poop deck and we'll have a tankard of ale. Good enough, readily responded the Cimmerian, sheathing his sword. The Argus was a small, sturdy ship typical of those trading crafts which ply between the ports of Zighara and Argos and the southern coasts, hugging the shoreline and seldom venturing far into the open ocean. It was high of stern, with a tall curving prow, broad in the waist, sloping beautifully to stem and stern. It was guided by the long sweep from the poop, 
and propulsion was furnished mainly by the broad-striped silk sail, aided by a jib-sail. The oars were for use in tacking out of creeks and bays and during calms. There were ten to the side, five fore and five aft of the small mid-deck. The most precious part of the cargo was lashed under this deck and under the foredeck. The men slept on deck or between the rowers' benches, protected in bad weather by canopies. With twenty men at the oars, three at the sweep, and the shipmaster, the crew was complete. So the Argus pushed steadily southward, with consistently fair weather. The sun beat down from day to day with fiercer heat, and the canopies were run up, striped silken cloths that matched the shimmering sail and the shining gold work on the prow and along the gunwales. They sighted the coast of Shem, long rolling meadowlands with the white crowns of the towers of cities in the distance, and horsemen with blue-black beards and hooked noses, who sat on their steeds along the shore and eyed the galley with suspicion. She did not put in. There was scant profit in trade with the sons of Shem. Nor did Master Tito pull into the broad bay where the Styx River emptied its gigantic flood into the ocean, and the massive black castles of Kemi loomed over the blue waters. Ships did not put unasked into this port, where dusky sorcerers wove awful spells in the murk of sacrificial smoke mounting eternally from blood-stained altars, where naked women screamed, and where set the old serpent, arch-demon of the Hyborians, but god of the Stygians, was said to writhe his shining coils among his worshippers. Master Tito gave that dreary glass-floored bay a wide berth, even when a serpent-proud gondola shot from behind a castellated point of land, and naked dusky women, with great red blossoms in their hair, stood and called to his sailors, and posed and postured brazenly. Now no more shining towers rose inland. They had passed the southern borders of Stygia, and were cruising along the coasts of Cush. The sea and the ways of the sea were never-ending mysteries to Conan, whose homeland was among the high hills of the northern uplands. The wanderer was no less of interest to the sturdy seamen, few of whom had ever seen one of his race. They were characteristic Argosian sailors, short and stockily built. Conan towered above them, and no two of them could match his strength. They were hardy and robust, but his was the endurance and the vitality of a wolf, his thews steeled and his nerves wetted by the hardness of his life in the world's wastelands. He was quick to laugh, quick and terrible in his wrath. He was a valiant trencherman, and strong drink was a passion and a weakness with him. Naive as a child in many ways, unfamiliar with the sophistry of civilization, he was naturally intelligent, jealous of his rights, and dangerous as a hungry tiger. Young in years, he was hardened in warfare and wandering, and his sojourns in many lands were evident in his apparel. His horned helmet was such as was worn by the golden-haired Aesir of Nordheim. His hauberk and greaves were of the finest workmanship of Koth. 
The fine ring mail which sheathed his arms and legs was of Nemedia. The blade at his girdle was a great Aquilonian broadsword, and his gorgeous scarlet cloak could have been spun nowhere but in Ophir. So they beat southward, and Master Tito began to look for the high-walled villages of the black people. But they found only smoking ruins on the shore of a bay littered with naked black bodies. Tito swore. I had good trade here aforetime. This is the work of pirates. And if we meet them? Conan loosened his great blade in its scabbard. Mine is no warship. We run, not fight. Yet if it comes to a pitch, we have beaten off reavers before, and might do it again, unless it were Belit's tigress. Who is Belit? The wildest she-devil unhanged. Unless I read the signs wrong, it was her butchers who destroyed that village on the bay. May I some day see her dangling from the yard-arm. She is called the Queen of the Black Coast. She is a Shemite woman who leads black raiders. They harry the shipping and have sent many a good tradesman to the bottom. From under the poop-deck Tito brought out quilted jerkings, steel caps, bows, and arrows. Little use to resist if we're run down, he grunted. But it rasps the soul to give up life without a struggle. It was just at sunrise when the lookout shouted a warning. Around the long point of an island off the starboard bow glided a long, lethal shape, a slender serpentine galley, with a raised deck that ran from stem to stem. Forty oars on each side drove her swiftly through the water, and the low rails swarmed with naked blacks that chanted and clashed spears on oval shields. From the masthead floated a long crimson pennon. Belit! yelled Tito, paling. Yar, put her about, into that creek mouth. If we can beach her before they run us down, we have a chance to escape with our lives. So, veering sharply, the Argus ran for the line of surf that boomed along the palm-fringed shore. Tito, striding back and forth, exhorted the panting rowers to greater efforts. The master's black beard bristled. His eyes glared. "'Give me a bow,' requested Conan. "'It's not my idea of a manly weapon, but I learned archery among the Hyrcanians.' And it will go hard if I can't feather a man or so on yonder deck. Standing on the poop, he watched the serpent-like ship skimming lightly over the waters, and, landsman though he was, it was evident to him that the Argus would never win that race. Already arrows arching from the pirate's deck were falling with a hiss into the sea not twenty paces astern. "'We'd best stand to it,' growled the Cimmerian. Else we'll all die with shafts in our backs, and not a blow dealt. Been to it, dogs! roared Tito with a passionate gesture of his brawny fist. The bearded rowers grunted, heaved at the oars, while their muscles coiled and knotted, and sweat started out on their hides. The timbers of the stout little galley creaked and groaned, as the men fairly ripped her through the water. The wind had fallen. The sail hung limp. Nearer crept the inexorable raiders, 
and they were still a good mile from the surf when one of the steersmen fell, gagging across a sweep, a long arrow through his neck. Tito sprung to take his place, and Conan, bracing his feet wide on the heaving poop-deck, lifted his bow. He could see the details of the pirates plainly now. The rowers were protected by a line of raised mantelets along the sides, but the warriors dancing on the narrow deck were in full view. These were painted and plumed and mostly naked, brandishing spears and spotted shields. On the raised platform in the bows stood a slim figure, whose white skin glistened in dazzling contrast to the glossy ebon hides about it. Belit, without a doubt. Conan drew the shaft to his ear, then some whim or qualm stayed his hand, and sent the arrow through the body of a tall-plumed spearman beside her. Hand over hand the pirate galley was overhauling the lighter ship. Arrows fell in a rain about the Argus, and men cried out. All the steersmen were down, pin-cushioned, and Tito was handling the massive sweep alone. Gasping black curses, his braced legs, knots of straining thews. Then, with a sob, he sank down, a long shaft quivering in his sturdy heart. The Argus lost headway and rolled in the swell. The men shouted in confusion, and Conan took command in characteristic fashion. "'Up, lads!' he roared, loosing with a vicious twang of cord. "'Grab your steel and give these dogs a few knocks before they cut our throats. "'Useless to bend your backs any more. "'They'll board us ere we can row another fifty paces.' "'In desperation the sailors abandoned their oars and snatched up their weapons. "'It was valiant, but useless.' They had time for one flight of arrows before the pirate was upon them. With no one at the sweep, the Argus rolled broadside, and the steel-baked prow of the raider crashed into her amidships. Grappling irons crunched into the side. From the lofty gunwales the black pirates drove down a volley of shafts that tore through the quilted jackets of the doomed sailormen then sprang down, spear in hand, to complete the slaughter. On the deck of the pirate lay half a dozen bodies, an earnest of Conan's archery. The fight on the Argus was short and bloody. The stocky sailors, no match for the tall barbarians, were cut down to a man. Elsewhere the battle had taken a peculiar turn. Conan, on the high-pitched poop, was on a level with the pirate's deck. As the steel prow slashed into the Argus, he braced himself and kept his feet under the shock, casting away his bow. A tall corsair, bounding over the rail, was met in mid-air by the Cimmerian's great sword, which sheared him cleanly through the torso, so that his body fell one way and his legs another. Then, with a burst of fury that left a heap of mangled corpses along the gunwales, Conan was over the rail and on the deck of the Tigress. In an instant he was in the center of a hurricane of stabbing spears and lashing clubs, but he moved in a blinding blur of steel. Spears bent on his armor or swished empty air, and his sword sang its death song. 
the fighting madness of his race was upon him, and with a red mist of unreasoning fury wavering before his blazing eyes, he cleft skulls, smashed breasts, severed limbs, ripped out entrails, and littered the deck like a shambles with a ghastly harvest of brains and blood. Invulnerable in his armor, his back against the mast, he heaped mangled corpses at his feet, until his enemies gave back, panting in rage and fear. Then, as they lifted their spears to cast them, and he tensed himself to leap and die in the midst of them, a shrill cry froze the lifted arms. They stood like statues, the black giants posed for the spear-casts, the mailed swordsman with his dripping blade. Belit sprang before the blacks, beating down their spears. She turned toward Conan, her bosom heaving, her eyes flashing. Fierce fingers of wonder caught at his heart. She was slender, yet formed like a goddess, at once lithe and voluptuous. Her only garment was a broad silken girdle. Her white ivory limbs and the ivory globes of her breasts drove a beat of fierce passion through the Cimmerian's pulse, even in the panting fury of battle. Her rich black hair, black as a Stygian night, fell in rippling burnished clusters down her supple back. Her dark eyes burned on the Cimmerian. She was untamed as a desert wind, supple and dangerous as a she-panther. She came close to him, heedless of his great blade, dripping with blood of her warriors. Her supple thigh brushed against it, so close she came to the tall warrior. Her red lips parted as she stared up into his somber, menacing eyes. "'Who are you?' she demanded. "'By Ishtar, I have never seen your like.' though I have ranged the seas from the coasts of Zingara to the fires of the ultimate south. Whence come you? From Argos, he answered shortly, alert for treachery. Let her slim hand move toward the jeweled dagger in her girdle, and a buffet of his open hand would stretch her senseless on the deck. Yet in his heart he did not fear. He had held too many women, civilized or barbaric, in his iron-thewed arms not to recognize the light that burned in the eyes of this one. "'You are no soft Iborian,' she exclaimed. "'You are fierce and hard as a gray wolf. Those eyes were never dimmed by city lights, and those thews were never softened by life amid marble walls.' "'I am Conan, a Cimmerian,' he answered. To the people of the exotic climes, the north was a mazy, half-mythical realm, peopled with ferocious blue-eyed giants, who occasionally descended from their icy fastnesses with torch and sword. Their raids had never taken them as far south as Shem, and this daughter of Shem made no distinction between Aesir, Vanir, or Cimmerian. With the unerring instinct of her elemental feminine, she knew she had found her lover, and his race meant naught, save as it invested him with the glamour of far lands. 
and I am Belit, she cried, as one might say, I am queen. Look at me, Conan. She threw wide her arms. I am Belit, queen of the Black Coast. Oh, tiger of the north, you are cold as the snowy mountains which bred you. Take me and crush me with your fierce love. Go with me to the ends of the earth and the ends of the sea. I am a queen by fire and steel and slaughter. Be thou my king. His eyes swept the blood-stained ranks, seeking expressions of wrath or jealousy. He saw none. The fury was gone from the ebon faces. He realized that to these men Belit was more than a woman, a goddess whose will was unquestioned. He glanced at the Argus, wallowing in the crimson sea-wash, healing far over, her decks awash, held up by the grappling irons. He glanced at the blue-fringed shore, at the far-green hazes of the ocean, at the vibrant figure which stood before him, and his barbaric soul stirred within him. To quest these shining blue realms with that white-skinned young tiger-cat, to love, laugh, wonder, and pillage. I'll sail with you, he grunted, shaking the red drops from his blade. Oh, Nyaga, her voice twanged like a bowstring, fetch herbs and dress your master's wounds. The rest of you bring aboard the plunder and cast off. As Conan sat with his back against the poop rail, while the old shaman attended to the cuts on his hands and limbs, the cargo of the ill-fated Argus was quickly shuffled aboard the Tigris and stored in small cabins below the deck. Bodies of the crew and of fallen pirates were cast overboard to the swarming sharks, while wounded blacks were laid in the waist to be bandaged. Then the grappling irons were cast off, and as the Argus sank silently into the blood-flecked waters, the Tigris moved off southward to the rhythmic clack of the oars. As they moved out over the glassy blue deep, Belit came to the poop. Her eyes were burning like those of a she-panther in the dark, as she tore off her ornaments, her sandals, and her silken girdle, and cast them at his feet. Rising on tiptoe, arms stretched upward, a quivering line of naked white, she cried to the desperate horde, "'Wolves of the blue sea, behold ye now the dance!' The mating dance of Belit, whose fathers were kings of Ascalon. As she danced, like the spin of a desert whirlwind, like the leaping of a quenchless flame, like the urge of creation and the urge of death, her white feet spurned the blood-stained deck, and dying men forgot death as they gazed frozen at her. Then. As the white stars glimmered through the blue velvet dusk, making her whirling body a blur of ivory fire, with a wild cry she threw herself at Conan's feet, and the blind flood of the Cimmerian's desire swept all away as he crushed her panting form against the black plates of his corseleted breast. End of Chapter One